Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Julie Gould and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This episode is part of a series of special episodes where we'll be speaking to winners of various nature research awards. And this week, I speak to Tom Baden, the inaugural winner of the Driving Global Impact Award. This year, Nature Research and their China-based partner Tencent launched the Driving Global Impact Award to celebrate early career researchers whose work has made or has the potential to make a positive impact on society. Professor Tom Baden from the University of Sussex is the inaugural winner of this award and his main area of research is on the neuroscience of vision. But he also has another passion which made him really stand out to the judges. Tom is a trailblazer in the field of open source hardware and 3D printing and is passionate about its potential to improve the quality of research as well as making well-equipped labs more affordable for developing countries. I met with Tom to talk about his work, his win and his vision for how open source hardware will impact the future of research. This particular award, the Driving Global Impact Award, it's got it's got a big name and, and impact is a big word within research. So tell me a little bit about the award and why you applied. Aside from my, my sort of standard research that I do, which would be in, in visual neuroscience, we also in the lab spend a lot of time trying to tinker with open hardware solutions, that is 3D printing, electronics, um, off-the-shelf uh, components that can be combined to build powerful scientific tools. And that really is a movement that has been taking off over the last few years, which has been picked up around the world quite readily. And I think this is the sort of thing that actually will have a large impact, I dare say possibly larger than the uh, impact of the research that we're doing. And the reason I think that this is so powerful is because for relatively little money with a little bit of know-how, you can build very sophisticated scientific machines. You can build machines that recreate what already existing very expensive ones do, but you can also um, start to invent. You can make them do things that commercially available machines cannot do. And that is, uh, well, that's the essence of research, right? You need machines that give you answers to problems that couldn't previously be asked uh, or, or addressed. So this was very tempting for me to put forward the idea of open hardware as a general thing for researchers to get into. So this is the first time I've heard the term open hardware. Right. What relationship does it have to open software, which I know is ubiquitous? You know, you've got Absolutely. Linux, you've got um, Firefox. 
uh, is literally the same thing. For open software, the idea is that people write software that is useful in some way, but then instead of hiding the, the source code, they publicly put it usually on the internet. So other people can then go, take the source code, change it, and in the end, you've got a, a program that's pretty powerful. For example, Linux is, is the famous one, right? That which, as it happens, uh, drives most spaceships and supercomputers, right? So these things don't run on Windows or on OS X or something, right? They run on Linux. So the power of the open source software paradigm has been very well demonstrated, I think, over the last uh, really decades. Open source hardware is basically the same thing, except that now we're starting to have the tools to actually build powerful things. So really what happened there is that 3D printing costs have come down over the last, say, 10 years or so. And at the same time, microcontrollers, I think that's the big deal. So basically, the ability to make your computer talk to electronics in a fairly simple and time-precise way. So if you combine those two things, you can build a lot of things. But the problem is any one person can only invent so much, right? So a really powerful way of, of going forward is I've, I've got an idea. I'm going to build a little machine. It's going to be good at something, but not ideal. And then someone else is going to see that machine and change it rather than start from scratch. And the hope really is that in this way, we can build tools that are really powerful, possibly one day, uh, you know, rivaling things that to the point when a scientist might decide, OK, am I, am I going to buy a new machine or am I going to use this? And that decision is almost easy to go for the open heart resolution. So this is really community driven innovation on a technology side. Yes. OK. How did you become interested in open hardware? It was quite random, I think. So some years back when I was still a postdoc in, in Germany, there, there was some spare money around to, to buy uh, lab equipment. And that was roughly around the time when the printer started to being affordable. So I, I bought one and I put it together and I had it in my office, basically. I was playing with it. And at the time, you could download models from the internet that were, uh, well, hobby models, basically. You, know, you could print a little dinosaur, that sort of thing. And then, of course, that gets old very quickly. And so with softwares that were already available um, for free, I started designing things. And every now and then, you'd see someone else's design that was actually a little machine rather than just a toy. And so I started looking at those and started sort of to think which, which of those is going to be useful for research either for me or for others, and started basically building them. And it's quite motivating also because you, you throw something together on the computer, you print it, and then in the evening you have it. You know, like the innovation cycle is incredibly quick. Yeah, so basically it's, 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 it's I don't know, it's Lego for grown-ups basically. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you used this Lego for grown-ups as part of your other research? So you're also a, a neuroscientist and right. you look at the, the signaling processes within the retina. Um, it fits together very, very nicely. So in order to do the sort of uh, recordings that we do, so physiological recordings from neurons in the in the eye, as you say, we use a two-photo microscope, which is in itself a, a very modular system. Simply to save cost, but also to be able to customize those machines, we're almost dependent on open hardware by now to, to kind of do these things. The machines that we have in the lab, you can't buy them, but you can just go online and look up how we built them. And there's a lot of additional hardware. There isn't really the two-photo microscope itself, but so for example, stimulation devices. So we, we need to stimulate eyes with light. So you need to uh, deliver those stimuli very precisely in time and also in space. And you, you just can't buy those devices, basically, right? So we work on fish, zebrafish, as it happens. Zebrafish have different visual uh, abilities than humans. So if you buy a human designed, uh, like a projector that's designed for humans, then uh, the, the wavelengths, for example, are all going to be wrong. So you need to build your own one. So really, there's no other alternative. 
then to build your own stimulating devices. And at that point, there's really no experiment that we do in the lab that doesn't in some way at least use use a home-built device. So it's nice to see that your open hardware has a local impact for you in your lab. But really, the point of this award is that it has global impact. Right. And I'm aware that you are also a co-founder of Trend Mm -hmm. in Africa. So before we go into how your work impacts that, tell me a little bit about what Trend is. Trend in Africa is an NGO that I founded together with, uh, with Lucia Prieto from the Crick here in London also, as well as Sadiq Yusuf, who's a professor at St. Augustine University in Kampala. So, so the three of us, we, we got together many years ago, I think it's eight years ago now, and we ran a course on insect neurogenetics, neurophysiology in Uganda, and that was the first course of its kind at the time. It was, a, it was sort of aimed at master's and PhD students. And... Then we got a lot of feedback and requests from students locally that said, look, can we can we do this again? Can we make it bigger? Can you grow this? And then so based on that, we, we set up a website. We started to get a little bit of funding to repeat the courses. We found some people that wanted to volunteer and help. And it sort of, it all grew out of that now. So the core idea of how Trend works is pretty much the same still. So we run courses mostly, but we've expanded also to, we, we help people source Equipment. So the idea is, if you if you go around your your average university department here in the UK, for example, there will be a lot of equipment sitting on the shelves that is no longer being used, but it's probably perfectly work- workable. So rather than just having it sit there, we collect these and we find African partners that specifically request those machines and we ship them. So we've got that program. We've got another program where people that want to teach at an African university for a limited period of time, we can try to find them a university that actually needs the particular expertise that they have. And we have a a fairly sizable by now outreach team, which is actually quite exciting in itself because that's entirely led by our alumni, right? So this is is exclusively African scientists that want to go back into communities and basically, well, encourage people to consider a career in science and to get people to think about science on the ground, which which is very powerful. And it's, it's actually very nice as well, because given that the local scientists are doing it, they're believable role models, right? If I go, it... It looks really weird if I go to a random African school and tell them about science, then I'm not relatable. So how does your open hardware work then fit into this? As part of trying to establish research infrastructure, that is to set up labs that can execute powerful techniques, we we started to think about using an open hardware approach. So the first thing that we did, that was in 2015, we ran a, a course on how to build lab equipment. So what we did is... Um, we got funding from the Volkswagen Foundation at the time, and we went to Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and we ran a course for 21 students, which came in seven groups, and each group built a 3D printer. So we'd bring all the bits that you need to build a 3D printer, we put it together, and then we, we showed people how to 3D model, how to print things, also a little bit how microcontrollers work. And then at the end of the course, those people would each take their 3D printer back home. A, in the hope that others at their universities would then see what the printer looks like and what it can do, but also... Well, so that they can, of course, support their own research uh, locally. And that was very popular from the feedback that we had. So we, we've since repeated that course a couple of times, and we've integrated aspects of this course into our other programs. So, for example, the neurogenetics course that we originally ran in Uganda in 2011 by now has a sizable open hardware component. So it's still about neurogenetics, but we tend to build a little device, usually nothing too big, because you need to kind of do it in an afternoon. So what we do is we bring a bag of parts for, say, one of those backyard brain spiker boxes, if you come across them. This is basically a very low-cost extracellular amplifier that you can use for neurophysiology experiments. It's it's produced by an open hardware company in the States, Backyard Brains. So we used to put those together, and then students would get familiar with how to solder, with the idea that within a couple of hours you can actually build a device like this if you've got the materials 
get familiar with the idea that you can just go online and look up what else has been produced or suggested. So this this is now very much a part of those courses. I wonder, given how ubiquitous open software is and, and how interested you are in open hardware, do you foresee a future where university courses, like the courses you run with Trend, take open hardware and technological development and put it into the courses that they are teaching scientists. Because, like you said, if you have the materials, you can actually very quickly build a piece of technology that would be extremely useful to you for your research and that is customized for what you want to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think this, to some extent, actually happening in schools. For example, the Raspberry Pi Foundation is trying very hard to get kids to learn how to use these these Raspberry Pis. Um, in the same way, of course, it would make a huge amount of sense to have university degrees include aspects on these these kind of things. So we're trying to uh, to push that a little bit at Sussex now, of course. You know, these things always take a while to develop. But I, I think this would be absolutely a, an essential skill for scientists to have these days, as would be, for example, programming, which is, you know, you can learn programming, but if you do your average, say, biology degree, there isn't a huge deal on programming in most curricula yet, even though it's obviously very important. This isn't the first award that you have received. We spoke two years ago about the Eppendorf Award that you received for your work in neuroscience and studying the retina. At the time, it was of the mouse, because you've mentioned you, you were doing research on the zebra Absolutely, fish. Yeah. So why are you entering these awards and what do you think this means for your career? I mean, it's a very obvious career boost, of course. Um, but for this particular award, I think it is also the opportunity to really showcase the powers of open hardware. So, you know, it's it, it, one might argue it goes a little bit beyond the selfish idea that I, I get an, an award. Of course, the Eppendorf at the time, that was my first one. I, I, I wanted an award. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can't say fairer than that, really, can you? <laughs> You're also, as part of winning this Driving Global Impact Award, you have been invited to speak at the Tencent Science Festival, which will be on November 2nd. So what sort of things are you going to be talking about whilst you're there? So I'm still I'm still working on what exactly I'm going to talk about, but it will very strongly center around the idea that you can build your own tools, whether or not you're a scientist. The point is because these tools are so cheap, people can have these tools in their kitchen, really. You don't need to be an academic in any way to build a microscope, for example, right? You can just buy a cheap lens and glue it to your phone and you've got a microscope. So just to get these ideas into people's head and start people exploring A, on the internet and B, just, just by playing with things they might have lying around. So there's a rumor that you encourage anyone who comes to work in your lab that they need to build something on a 3D printer. Now, I imagine you've had some weird and wonderful and also sometimes useful and maybe not so useful things being built by a 3D printer. So what sort of things are people building in your 3D printers? It, it's true. So people that come to the lab in order to take away, I guess, the fear of using these tools, depending on, on exactly how much they're going to be using open hardware, we, we make them build fairly complicated things or fairly simple things. So a simple thing might be something that's already been published. So all you have to do is basically follow the instructions. Other people, for example, for their PhD may need to build a device that allows them to measure a new thing. And then, of course, they have to build that. And what's your favorite thing that you've made with a 3D printer? Oh, that's difficult. <laughs> so quite recently, I, I, I wouldn't want to pick a favorite. Recently, what we've built is published uh, uh, maybe half a year ago is, is a little electronic neuron. So it's basically, it doesn't have to do anything with 3D printing. It's all electronics. It's a uh, functional model of a neuron where you can shine light on it and then it generates action potentials and you can connect it to a second neuron and you can make it excite or inhibit the neuron. So you can build little networks. 
And it's just a fun thing for a neurophysiologist to have. And so we've, we've been starting to use this also for teaching. Actually, we've integrated that into the Sussex curriculum, which I think has been quite su successful. That has been a lot of fun to do. Now, one thing I always like to ask uh, people who I bring into the studio with me is if they have any advice that they like to offer for people who are, you know, earlier on in the career than, than you might be. Um, so do you have any advice about being an academic? In, in terms of generally being academic, it's I guess it's a fairly obvious advice, but one that, that you don't always see is you need to have fun what you're doing. I think if if you're feeling that it's a struggle or that you're not enjoying your project, change the project. There's a lot of people in there that just perseveres through through projects that are not working, that they don't find interesting, that they've been given by someone in the lab. And I don't think that's a very healthy way of doing science. And that's not the sort of thing that's going to, you know, motivate you to put in the hours and to really think about the problem and to think out of the box, which is usually what you have to do. I feel very privileged that I can do science and I have a lot of fun doing it. So we talked a little bit earlier about how this wasn't your first award and that there's a, a slightly selfish aspect of it's a career booster and it's good for you as well as for your lab and the team that you work with. Do you have any advice for anybody who is thinking about applying for an award and how they might do so and, and what is the best way to do it? In my mind, applying for an award is a little bit like applying for a university position or for a grant. I think the most important thing is clarity, right? You cannot write something that may be incredibly clever, but no one understands. So I think it's very important to make sure that even a non-academic can read the first few lines of your applications and immediately gets the sort of thing that you're trying to do. So I think that's the best advice I generally have for how to write anything. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Tom's award is not the only one offered by Nature Research. Later this year, we'll be profiling other award winners on the Working Scientist podcast. These include our annual mentoring awards, which this year come from India, and the Inspiring Science and Innovating Science Awards, which celebrate the achievement of female researchers. There's also the John Maddox Prize, which recognises individuals who promote science and evidence, advance discussion around difficult topics despite challenges or hostility. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.